You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jessica Matthews. I'm president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's a great pleasure to welcome you uh, to this debate today on perhaps the most critical issue facing national security decision makers uh, in this election year. Uh, this is the first in a series of three debates that Carnegie is doing this election series. Uh, the next will be on China and the U.S.-China relationship um, at the end of this month, and then um, a concluding debate on the U.S. role in the world um, early, uh, the beginning of October, both of them in Washington. Um, I, uh, I don't think I, I need really to introduce um, our moderator to, to you, uh, former senior advisor to President Clinton. He is also a best-selling author and Emmy Award-winning anchor of both Good Morning America and This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, during more than a decade on the air, he has proven himself over and over to be one of the smartest journalists on television today. Less well-known um, is the fact that uh, George is a former Carnegie Junior Fellow, um, uh, a program that takes 10, of, 10 or 12 each year of the most promising young college graduates, gives them a year of training and experience, experience and then launches them into careers in international affairs, in public service, education, the private sector. Um, the program has produced dozens of distinguished graduates, but none more so than our moderator today. Um, our debaters are equally distinguished. Um, between them, they have um, uh, many different views uh, on Iran and uh, have served at the highest levels of government, journalism, and academia. Uh, Dennis Ross, on the far, on my far right, your far left, uh, has been key advisor to a long succession of both Democratic and Republican presidents on the Middle East. Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was dean of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University, left to become director of policy planning at the State Department before returning to teach at Princeton. Brett Stevens, next to Dennis, Many of you know as the Wall Street Journal's Global View columnist and the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. And rounding out the panel is, is Carnegie's Kareem Sajatpour, one of the best-informed and most ex insightful experts on Iranian internal politics and decision-making. Each of them has a different view about how to tackle Iran um, and brings a different perspective with it. I want to thank each of them for agreeing to participate in this debate, uh, which I think will help all of us uh, understand what Iranians are thinking and what U.S. policymakers ought to be doing about this longstanding challenge. And finally, let me thank all of you for joining us today. George. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks to the Carnegie Endowment for that internship so many years <coughs> ago. I plan to put everything I learned at Carnegie to good use tomorrow morning when I interview Elmo on Good Morning America. Um, <laughs> much more serious subjects uh, today. And we really want to get right into the debate and, and, and make this something of an interactive debate. You all have your, um, your remote de control devices, right? And we're going to have all of you weigh in on some of the big questions that our debaters are considering as, as well. And why don't we do that right now? Because the first question is going to be, what should the next American president do about Iran? 
and you have a choice of A, military strike, B, intensified sanctions, C, intensified negotiations, and D, keep going on the present course. While I, I turn this question over to our uh, debaters, I want you all to weigh in on that uh, as well. And Dennis, uh, why don't you start? What should be the American, what should the next American president do on this? Okay, can I offer option E? Go for it. <laughs> uh, I would say first you've got to start with what's our objective? And our objective, I think, has to be prevention, not containment. President Obama has that position. I think Governor Romney has it as well. I think in our discussion, I'll go in and explain why I think it has to be prevention, not containment. Suffice it to say, at this point, that containment actually won't work. So the real question is, what do you have to do to achieve prevention? It seems to me there's several things. Number one, intensify the sanctions so that, in, fa in fact, the economic pain that the Iranians are experiencing uh, goes up. The price that they're paying goes up. They're already feeling it right now, but I think it needs to be intensified. The second thing we have to do is we have to make uh, the threat of force more credible in Iranian eyes. I think, in fact, it's credible, but I don't think it's credible in, in Iranian eyes at this point. I think that the Iranians have to believe uh, that when it comes to diplomacy, though we, in fact, prefer it to succeed, that they are the ones who lose more if diplomacy fails. The third point, I think, is that we have to accelerate what I call diplomacy. By that, I mean the Iranians claim that, in fact, they want civil nuclear power. I'd like to see us put an end game proposal on the table that would allow them to have civil nuclear power, but it would be restricted in such a way that they could not convert it into a nuclear weapons capability. Put that on the table. If they are prepared to accept it, you have a way out. If they're not prepared to accept it, then you have exposed them. And it's important to expose them because you need to create a context if, in fact, force has to be used. If diplomacy fails and force has to be used, you have to understand that there is no military solution to this problem. You have military means to set the Iranians back. But the Iranians have the know-how and the engineering capability to be able to build a nuclear weapon. So even if you destroy their infrastructure, they are in a position to rebuild. We need to create a context where if force is used, everyone can see that the Iranians had a chance to resolve this, chose not to because they want nuclear weapons. And that will allow us to create a context where they are seen as having brought this on themselves. We are able to maintain their isolation. We are able to maintain severe sanctions. So the price to them of trying to reconstitute is very high. I want to, I want to get to Brett, but before I do, I just, you, made a, you have an underlying premise. I want to see if everyone agrees. Does everyone agree with Dennis that containment is not an option or not? Uh, I think it might be an option, but I don't think it should be our objective. I think our objective should be prevention, which is to say it might be possible to actually contain Iran to deter them uh, with respect to striking Israel, but the consequences of that, I think, would be unacceptable uh, for, in terms of proliferation around the region. So our objective should be prevention. Okay, so, Brett, you heard, you heard Dennis there. More negotiations, more sanctions, a little bit more of everything, a more credible threat of force. Your take? Right. Um, let me just say briefly, I think I'm on this panel because um, uh, Carnegie thought I was the hawk on this panel. Um, <laughs> uh, now I'm not. I, I feel more like I'm in... in share the views of my fellow panelists. Um, but I do want to make this point. Um, I would like to stress that the case to be made against the nuclear, nuclear, potential nuclearization of Iran is a liberal case. It's not 
about realists wondering how a nuclear Iran will play out in terms of proliferation throughout the region. That's an important consideration. It's not about American prestige in the Persian Gulf. Ultimately, it is the view that a regime that is prepared to take a stone in its right hand and stone a woman to death should not be given a nuclear weapon in its left hand to lob as it sees, uh, uh, as it sees fit. This is the most misogynistic regime in the world. This is the most homophobic regime uh, in the world. This is the most anti-Semitic regime in the world, and it's a regime that on a re regular, if not weekly, basis calls for the physical annihilation and extinction of another UN member state and of the Jewish people. And I think that point needs to be borne uppermost in mind. Now, if we were having this debate about a year ago, I would have agreed largely with what Dennis just said. I'm all for a kind of all, or I used to be for an all of the above type of strategy. By all means, let's try to draw the Iranians out in negotiation, although my faith that those negotiations would work uh, was never very strong, and I think my lack of faith has been vindicated. By all means, make sanctions more binding, more punitive, make them tougher, and make them more targeted on the leaders of the regime itself rather than uh, the Iranian people. By all means, and I think this is very important and a neglected part of this discussion, let's not forget that in 2009, the Iranian people rose up very courageously against an oppressive regime. And we need to remember that what is the forces that are taking place in Iran, even though they seem dormant at, uh, for the time being, are no, um, uh, aren't, are no more dormant than they were in, say, Poland in 1983-1984. There is a movement there that is waiting to be ignited, and ultimately, we will only resolve this crisis when there is a different regime in Iran. I'm not calling for sending in the 3rd Infantry Brigade. I'm just saying that we need Iran to return to what it was uh, before this, the Islamic Republic took over. However, that being said, um, I am increasingly coming to the view that the only way by which Iran will be stopped, or at least be stopped for the time being, is by some kind of military strike. We're trying sanctions, and they seem to have a limited uh, effect. If anything, they might be spurring the regime, they might be accelerating the regime's program. We've tried covert activity. Right now you have reports that there's yet another ingenious computer worm virus working its way through Iran's centrifuges. And yet, every time we try these sort of super techno gizmos, Iran seems to produce larger stocks of enriched uranium and enrich it to a, uh, a, a, a higher level. At some point, when you say all options are on the table, you have to be really serious about the military option. And that's not to say, and I'll conclude with this, it's not to say that there won't be unforeseen and very nasty consequences to the use of military force. I don't think military force has ever been used, even in Grenada or the Falklands or whatever, without some unforeseen consequence, and certainly without uh, the loss of life. What worries me is that the fear of these unforeseen consequences is obstructing our view of the very foreseeable consequences of the world in which we live if Iran is permitted to tiptoe across the nuclear goal line and become a nuclear weapons state. I, I, I want to get to Kareem, but let me just press something because it sounds like you're saying something very close to what Dennis is saying about reinforcing the, the military threat, but how much farther specifically are, are, are you suggesting we take that? Well, I don't know because I don't know how much yeah. farther Dennis is willing uh, uh, to take it. But you can't, wheel, you can't brandish a sword if you aren't seriously prepared to use it. And we have been um, harming ourselves, I think, especially in our diplomatic efforts, by allowing the Iranian leaders to, have to, to, to 
um, begin to wonder whether we're entirely serious. There is, it seems to me, a perception throughout the Middle East that the United States is in retreat, that we're sick of this region, that Iraq was an expensive boondoggle that yielded nothing, that Afghanistan is, is the same, that we don't know how to change these societies, whether it's in Tunis or, or Cairo or, or Ramallah or whatever, that we want out of these Middle Eastern entanglements. And I think the Iranians see that as an opportunity. They follow our conversations very closely. You know, it's just <coughs> interestingly, so we have this three-part discussion here, and it's, you know, uh, the third part of this discussion is what happens if Iran gets a nuclear weapon? Well, that kind of gives away the premise, right? I mean, it, right. it says, well, you know, we're, we're all here agreed that this must never happen, but what if it does? All that says, if I were an Iranian diplomat in the audience, it would say to me, these guys aren't entirely serious. How do we make it clear that we are entirely serious? So Kareem, weigh in here, but it does seem the common thread of Dennis and Brett is that the Iranians don't right now believe that our military threat is credible. I think that's right. I mean, before I start, I want to thank you all for braving the weather and thank George for moderating. Uh, although the historic irony of having a Greek adjudicative panel about the Persians wasn't lost on me. <laughs> um, I get the last word. <laughs> you know, but the Jews are on your side. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> Historic friends, the Persians and the Jews. Um, I think um, yes and no, whether or not the Iranians take the threat of military action seriously. Um, on one hand, they've been moving forward with their nuclear program. On the other hand, they haven't been driving 100 miles an hour. I would argue they've been driving 30 miles an hour. They've taken a fairly deliberate approach. And I, I think the threat of military action has prevented them or deterred them from breaking out. But you know, Brett made a very important, important point, which I think is, um, is important to accentuate. And that is the difference between the Iranian nation and the Iranian regime. Uh, Henry Kissinger had a great line once about Iran, the Iranian nation. He said, quote, there are few nations in the world with whom the United States has more common interests and less reason to quarrel than Iran. But he said that Iran has to decide whether it's a nation or a cause. The problem with this Iranian regime is it sees itself as an ideological cause against the United States, against Israel. So my argument is that I think we, we need to think hard about policies which slow down their nuclear progress, deter them from pursuing a nuclear weapon, uh, but at the same time don't do anything that prolongs the shelf life of this regime another five years, another ten years. And you're suggesting a military strike would do that? My concern is that a military strike, you know, according to Israeli estimates, it could set back the nuclear clock two to three years. Uh, but my concern is that it could, it could further entrench and resuscitate a deeply unpopular regime, perhaps another decade, another generation. So I, know, I, I, I completely agree that no one in the White House or in the government should be using the word containment, because the word containment sends the signal to Tehran that the U.S. is going to acquiesce, and therefore, you know, you're free to take the path of a nuclear weapon. That said, I do think that as long as we're preventing them from acquiring a nuclear weapon, the best option is to essentially do what we can to expedite the forces of, of change in Iran, because ultimately, I think this is the best hope for both the United States and Israel in the Middle East, is an Iran which, which pursues its national interests and is is, is pursuing policies which represent Iranian popular opinion. And Marie, I want to hear from you, but this also get, lets me bring another question to the audience because you've all touched on it. And the second question we wanted to ask all of you is, um, will Iran be a democracy within the next decade? A, no, B, yes, which is tied into what I think both Brett and Kareem were, were, were discussing. So weigh in on that as well, and Anne-Marie now. So I was just going to say I'm the 
you know, I was the good girl. I did my homework. I was actually going to give you an answer of either A, B, C, or D, and now you just <laughs> moved A, B, okay. C, or D. Uh, but I, I actually think we should go for intensified negotiations. Uh, I, the sanctions we have right now are the strongest sanctions we have had. Uh, we should actually absolutely keep them on, keep them together. But part of doing that is making very clear that this isn't just sticks. This is sticks and carrots. Uh, so we, we've got the sanctions. I think we do now need uh, to engage in intensified negotiations, even if they don't work, uh, for, for a number of what reasons. What does that mean? Well, it means, it means coming to the table. It means making, being willing to make the concessions to come to the table. It means putting uh, positions on the table and being willing to be quite public about them. Uh, part of that is simply to make clear to the rest of the world that we are serious about negotiations, that we're, this isn't just a charade uh, before actually using force, making clear that we are willing to do whatever we can so that if we do have to use force, we can say we really did try Lots of different options. And there is a deal that could be, could be reached. I mean, in fact, Dennis outlined, yes, you have the right to enrich uh, uranium for peaceful purposes. We don't believe that you're only doing it for pe- peaceful purposes. We can structure a deal whereby we would believe it. But that means Why won't you take outside it? of the country, right? Well, that, that's one way to do it. There are a number of ways to do it. But they remember, the Iranians at least agreed on paper with the Turks and Brazilians to do that. And with us, they're negotiators, but then it got walked back in Tehran. But I would say it's very important for our credibility. It's very important for any chance of reaching a deal. Uh, but I would also say in, we have a lot of business to do with Iran. We need Iran on both Syria and on Afghanistan. Uh, that's not something we want to admit, but frankly, I don't see out any way out of Syria unless Iran plays some role in some settlement. We don't want to talk to them directly, but it would be great if we were actually engaged with them on other issues. And in 2014, we are not going to get a stable Afghanistan going forward unless, again, Iran is some part of a larger settlement. So we have a lot to do with Iran. I think we should at least intensify uh, the negotiations. Two points on one on the use of force and one on women since uh, Brett raised it. On the use of force, I agree it's got to be credible, but we face a real dilemma here. If we use force against Iran, it is very likely we will be at war with Iran. It's likely that Iran will strike back. It could strike back against shipping. It could strike back against our troops in various ways, terrorists and other ways. The American people show no appetite for wanting another war, much less another war in the Middle East. We have to have a public debate if that's what we're going to do. That's what being a democracy means. We do not strike a, a country that is a major country that we would then be at war at without a debate. Having that debate can undermine the credibility of the threat, and it is a huge problem. On the one hand, you want to be back in Bismarck's world or Kissinger's world where you can you decide your strategy and execute. But honestly, as a president of a democracy, a democracy that says the Senate is supposed to decide when we go to war, I don't think we're going to get to that, but we have to have a public debate. Last point, um, I'm not going to defend the Iranian government on its practices toward women, but I have to say 
Uh, there's a lot of competition for the most misogynist regime in the world. Uh, and, you know, as last I checked, at least people, women could drive uh, in, uh, in Iran. So I, I, I don't actually think that is the basis on which I would want to use force. I saw Brett cocking his head at the idea of more concessions from the United States. Well, I mean, so I swear this is a story not about me, but about a colleague. Um, I remember sitting when I just joined the journal and a guy who sat next to me was attempting clearly to arrange a date. And I'll, I'll never forget, he said, well, how about Friday night? And then there was a pause, Saturday, Sunday, what about next week? And this kind of went on in this kind of humiliating way and you thought, oh my goodness. And that in a sense typifies um, our approaches to Iran uh, actually, not just over the last four years, but over the last uh, 30 years. Remember, the Reagan administration tried engagement with Iran. Um, President Clinton tried engagement with Iran. He even hung out in the basement of the UN trying for a chance encounter with <laughs> President Khatami, then seen as the most, probably the most moderate president Iran has had. The late Bush administration started walking these waters. They certainly encouraged the Europeans, uh, a European negotiation. The Obama administration came into office with the stated goal that it was going to stretch out its hand to Iran. And I think they made a really good faith effort. You would, you would surely know better, better than I being inside the administration. But not just the private signals, but the public messages, the no ruse, uh, 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 New Year's greetings, and so on. So this has been going on for three and a half years. And at every time, and in fact, um, since this is a debate, I'm going to rag on Dennis for a second. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, a few months ago, Dennis wrote an op-ed, very hopeful that negotiations in Baghdad were likely to yield fruit um, uh, because the Iranians were under these, these very punishing sanctions. The Iranians keep saying no. And at some point, you have to say they mean no. Why? Maybe because they honestly think that they're right that they're entitled to nuclear energy, that they're probably entitled to a nuclear weapon, you know, to, to revise, the, re, revise the world order. And it behooves us to accept, you know, to, to accept that and not play the shadow game in which we say, well, constant protestations of our, of our good faith will win them over. One, um, just, 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 just one last point. We've been debating Iran for a very long time. This is 10 years since we discovered, August 2002, that Iran had a secret nuclear program. It was in October 2009, during his first G8 meeting in Pittsburgh, that President Obama revealed the existence of this secret site in Fordo, which is now enriching uranium uh, to 20% uh, level. It's not as if all of you guys woke up and said, oh, gee, you know, there's this thing happening in, in Iran. Let's now have a long, extended national debate. This is what we've been doing for a decade. I want to get Dennis and Emmerine, but let me just press you with one, one more question on that. You say take the Iranians at their word, and this is an, an, an honest puzzle for me. How do you reconcile that with the consistent statements of the supreme leader yeah. that having a nuclear weapon would be a sin? That was my... Yeah, well, that's true. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, in a sense, you're, well, I'm, first of all, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm asking you what, to, what you make of it. Okay, I, I, in that sense, I, I, I concede that you, you, you got me. He, he offered this fatwa. Does anyone really believe it? No, I don't think anyone does. Okay. Oh. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, on the other hand, this is a regime that keeps saying. Um, we don't want to have a deal. We're not interested in trading uranium to 20, uh, at a 20% level. We're not interested in spare parts. We're not interested in, in, in a grand bargain. There's a consistency, at least, not so much in the statement, but in the action. So take their actions for what they are. I will comment on that first. 
this recent fatwa wasn't the first time they did a fatwa. He did a fatwa on this going back, I think, to the early 2000s. You know, he was doing, he did a fatwa on this at the very time that they were working on weaponization, which the IEA had reported. So the fact is you can have a fatwa that creates an impression of what you're about, but if your behavior belies it, then you should look at what the behavior is. That's the first point. <clears throat> the second point is, uh, when I did write that piece, one has to read it carefully. What I said, we've created a context that gives diplomacy the best possible chance to succeed. There's no guarantee that it will. Because the fact of the matter is, this is a regime that has built itself on a premise of hostility towards us, number one. And number two, it's a regime that actually wants nuclear weapons. It wants nuclear weapons for offensive and defensive reasons. Offensive reasons, partly because it thinks it's entitled to be the hegemon in the area. Defensive reasons, because it thinks that if it has nuclear weapons, it'll actually ensure that the regime So you think provides. the fatwa is meaningless? Sorry? You think the fatwa is meaningless, then? I think the fatwa is for a lot of external consumption. Now, having said that, I also think that if at some point they do a deal, and I think there are circumstances under which they do the deal, the fatwa becomes a rationale for why they did the deal. It's part of their explanation. So they can have it. You, the fatwa can be there for multiple purposes. In terms of, of, of outreach, <clears throat> yes, we, we had a very serious outreach. We made a real genuine effort, uh, and they weren't prepared to engage. Now, the fact is the last, you know, if you look at 2011, we had negotiations January, February. They weren't serious. The Iranians weren't serious. Here again, we began negotiations in the spring of this year. The only reason they're not ongoing right now is because the Iranians weren't prepared to do anything serious at the table. One of the reasons I'm suggesting that we put an endgame proposal on the table yeah. is not because uh, I think it's impossible to reach an agreement, but I don't have high confidence we can do it. But the one thing I'm certain of, if they are serious, and I don't know if, it's, if this is the case, but if they are serious that they want civil nuclear power, let's test it. Not with the kind of negotiations we've had so far. The negotiations we've had have been based on a step-by-step -step logic. The idea was, well, 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 we'll get them to take a step that will begin to show that they're prepared to put themselves in a position where they live up to their international obligations. It'll be a process. It won't be one step that proves it, but it'll be a series of steps. The problem with that approach is for any step they take, they want a lot in return from us. Understandably, we don't want to give them a lot in return for something that's quite limited. As long as you have that kind of a structure, you're not going anywhere. So why not focus on what the core of the issue is? The core of the issue is, are they prepared to live with civil nuclear power that is constrained in a way that it cannot be converted into a breakout capability? If they are, there's a diplomatic way out. If there's not, let's at least expose that in a way that creates a context where and, the and world and the Iranian public sees they had a chance to have a way out, but they chose not to take and it. Presumably, Karim, that would also help at least prepare public for a possible war. I mean, you know, Den both Dennis and Brett are much more convinced about uh, what Iran wants than our own intelligence establishment. Our own intelligence establishment thinks, A, it, people in Iran are divided, and B, they, the supreme leader has not, in fact, made up his mind to go all the way to a nuclear weapon. To get close to being able to create a nuclear weapon, yes, I think that definitely. But there are a lot of states uh, who are in that position. They're sta they're, that itself, if they were never going to create a nuclear weapon, would, would put us in a different position vis-a-vis -vis them. So the idea that they've made up their mind is not supported by the intelligence, and it hasn't been supported by the intelligence over a year. It's back and forth. Second, this idea that Iran 
Right? We know it's an incredibly divided government. We know that there are lots of internal fissures. It's very complicated politics. Kareem can speak to it uh, much better than I can. But we also know that demographically, you have young people who are very, think very differently than the regime. You saw that in the Green Revolution. You see that with any analysis of Iran. I remember once meeting an Iranian who was my age, uh, and telling him that a friend of mine had been in Iran when the U.S. had invaded Iraq. And this friend of mine said, young Iranians had asked him, why don't you invade us? And I said this to this guy who was an Iranian. I said, my gosh, you know, young people in your country talking that positively. And he said, well, do you have a teenager? And at that point, I didn't. And I said, no. He said, well, I have a teenager. The parents are anti-U.S. This regime is defined against U.S. You have young people who take a very different position. So I was looking up at this, this answer. I think if we don't use military force, I am prepared to bet, yes, Iran will be some kind of more plur uh, representative democracy uh, in 10 years. It could be. And we have to play to maximize that chance. It could be more of a democracy, but I guess this is a question for you, Kareem. Every and this is all imperfect analysis, but every poll I've ever seen of the Iranians say one thing that unites them is the idea that Iran should be a nuclear power. I actually disagree with that. Uh, when I was based uh, in Tehran, I was based in Tehran uh, until Ahmadinejad's uh, election in 2005, which uh, you know, I was then encouraged to leave the country. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember doing the math at that time, and the regime had spent about $16, $17 billion on its nuclear program, and you know, now the, the cost has been uh, exponentially higher because of the lost foreign investment, the sanctions. But at that time, I, I used the number 16 billion. And I remember kind of doing a back of the envelope calculation and seeing that with $16 billion, you could also invite each Iranian family once a week for a kebab dinner for an entire year. And I remember uh, every Iranian I encountered that, that year, you know, in cities and villages, asking them, would you rather have a nuclear program or be the guest <laughs> of the government for a kebab for an entire year? And overwhelmingly, people said kebab. Uh, <laughs> because that's something that's which what's is... missing in the, in the negotiations. <laughs> right. We you just know, need to offer it, kebab. It sounds like a, a superficial point, but the, what, what's underlying that is that, you know, when people wake up in the morning in Iran, they're not thinking about enriched uranium. They're thinking about the price of chicken, about employment opportunities, about rampant inflation. And that has never been posed to the public. There's never been an open and honest public debate about this issue. I think for precisely that reason. But I have to say that I, I, I share Brett's cynicism about the prospect for some type of a negotiated resolution. Um, there's a, the famous book about negotiations in the United States was uh, by Roger Fisher called Getting to Yes. Roger Fisher just passed away a couple of weeks ago. But his book was entitled Getting to Yes. And I will say the Iranian equivalent of that book is called Staying on Maybe. <laughs> you know, they, will, they will feign an interest in negotiations, and they would like to drag this out. But I ultimately don't believe there's a Venn diagram in which the following three circles intersect. These three circles are Israeli national security doctrine, Iranian revolutionary ideology, and U.S. domestic politics. I don't see them intersecting that, that, that one brings place. To the next point that I want to get to. And can we put up the results in the first question? Uh, again, do we have that? As they do that, and, and, and Dennis, let me put this. Thank this. you. Everybody <laughs> wants, I mean, big majority for intensified negotiations. But I, I guess, Dennis, I'll put this question to you. How much of this is beside the point, what the next American president 
believes. How, how much control does the next American president have over Israeli, Israel, the, Israel's view of their own national security? And is this already kind of cooked? Well, I don't know that it's all cooked. I do think the following. Um, a, if whether it's President Obama who's already adopted a prevention objective, uh, or it's Romney who is also saying that he believes in prevention, that already moves you in a certain place, number one. Number two, the, where the Israelis are is they look at Iran that uh, represents, in their eyes, an existential threat. Uh, you have a regime that, as Brett said, on almost a routine basis, uh, describes Israel as a, a cancerous tumor that should be wiped out. Uh, the head of the Revolutionary Guard has talked about the importance of annihilating Israel. And so the idea that Iran uses those words, and by the way, it's punctuated those words with actual behaviors. They have been behind a lot of the terror that the Israelis have experienced. Uh, so it's not that this is just abstract talk. And then if they marry that talk with a nuclear weapons capability, uh, then from an Israeli standpoint, they face an existential threat and no Israeli prime minister is going to put themselves in a situation, not just this Israeli prime minister, no Israeli prime minister is going to accept a situation where Israel faces an existential threat but doesn't have a military option to deal with it. The reason Israel exists is to ensure that, in fact, it can take care of its security and there isn't going to be a second Holocaust. So there is a time pressure here. Uh, I think when Kareem talks about these intersecting circles, there is a time pressure here, and that affects, I think, also our approach to diplomacy. If we don't want the Israelis to act militarily, we're going to have to, on the one hand, convince them uh, not only that we mean what we say on prevention, but also that the diplomacy is not so open-ended. What, what is it? When, when, when Prime Minister Netanyahu says he wants a more clear red line from President Obama, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly having a hard time figuring out what it could be, because I had this exchange with Governor Romney last week, asked him about the red line. He says it's preventing a nuclear weapon. President Obama says exactly the same thing. Romney's advisors then say, no, it's preventing a nuclear capability, which seems more in line with the kind of thing that Netanyahu wants. But what, what precisely does that mean? Look, it is uh, easier to describe what you're trying to prevent uh, in the following fashion. What you don't want is Iran to be at a point where on its, it has its own means to decide when it's going to produce a nuclear weapon and confront the world with a fait accompli. In other words, it accumulates enough low-enriched uranium at a level where it could, in fact, shrink the time that would be required to produce a nuclear weapon, not only because they, have the, they can upgrade it, they can purify it to weapons grade, but they've done enough in terms of weaponization that the period of time that it would take could be shrunk to, you know, say, a month to six weeks, right. and we wouldn't know it, and then you're confronted with a fait accompli. Now, the question is, where's that point? Where precisely is the point where the combination of what they have in terms of accumulated enriched or medium-enriched uranium, where the weaponization, which, you know, we have... We know what the IEA has said about experimentation uh, on weaponization. Uh, where is the point where they've done enough of these different things where they could put it together very quickly, and what do we know about it? On our side, we say we, we know enough about where they are to say we would have enough time to know. 
What the Israelis are saying today is that's true. What they're worrying about is in another few months, will we still be at that point? And they're trying, I think what they want is to see if there's some greater degree of precision as it relates to when would Iran be at that point where we couldn't do something about it. So, the, so when you say prevention is your objective, it loses its meaning. Mm-hmm. And Brett, if Israel decides that that point has been reached as a practical matter, can an American president stand in their way? Well, that's a political matter. You probably would be in a better position to judge than I, but I, uh, as a, I doubt very much that an, any American president, certainly not this one or President Romney, would pull an Eisenhower and physically or put enough pressure on Israel to essentially render a strike um, uh, ineffective. Um, question we should be grappling with, and I say this as the former editor of the Jerusalem Post, is whether we as Americans want Israel to strike. And there is a view that maybe it's not such a bad thing. We don't want to be involved in this nasty business. We don't want to go to war with Iran. It's really more Israel's business than ours anyway, right, because the existential threat applies more directly to them. So why not allow them to have a go uh, at it. Let me stop you there, because Anne-Marie's shaking your head. <laughs> no, no, I, I, this is not my view. Oh, oh. Uh, I'm not, I'm not okay. speaking for myself. I think it is in the... I think that the greatest American interest is to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Our second interest should be to make sure that Israel does not go and strike on its own. Oh, okay. um, why? Because... There are questions about whether Israel really has the capability. Do we really want an Israel that can only shake a stick at a hornet's nest but not really put the hornet's nest out or down or whatever you do with hornet's (laughs) nests? Um, Do we want to be sucked into a war that is not of our own making and devising but will nonetheless uh, have consequences for us? Do we want, as a matter of national prestige, to delegate the task to a minor power like Israel? And on all those grounds, I would argue no. We really don't want Israel to strike. Now, what I would say, and this goes to what you and Dennis were discussing a second ago, is that the reason Israel is nervous today and the reason they are contemplating a strike is because the consistency of messages from the administration, at least as they see it, and I'm sure the administration sees it another way, has not been terrific. On the one hand, you had President Obama telling Jeff Goldberg very clearly uh, back in March you know, containment is not an option. Prevention is, is, is uh, the APAC policy. APAC speech, he reinforced yeah. it. But, of course, this, the rhetoric always seems to improve on the eve of APAC speeches, um, at least from the point of view of, of the Israelis. Then you, you move forward a little bit, and you have Dempsey saying, we're not going to be complicit, which was a strange choice of words. You have the administration radically scaling back this military exercise that had been planned a year ago as a... Um, as evidence of the strength of American-Israeli military cooperation. And you have the administration racing to put up ABM defenses throughout the Persian Gulf, in the words of David Sanger of the, of the Times, well, not the exact words, but generally speaking, in case Iran gets a bomb. So an Israeli, say if you're Michael Oren, the Israeli ambassador, I don't speak for him, but let's imagine you read that and you say, what do you mean in case, Israel, uh, in case Iran gets a bomb? You've been telling us, you're not going to get, they're not going to get a bomb, so why are you planning for the day after you get a bomb? So there has to be, I think, on the part of the administration and its members in the Pentagon, in the State Department, in the NSC, 
a very clear public as well as private message to Israel that we are deadly serious about that, even if we're operating on our timetable, not Israel. What about that inconsistency that he, that he discusses? What about The inconsistency of message, is that a fair point? Well, I, I actually think it's not a fair point in the sense of the business of government is to plan multiple scenarios. So, of course, even if you're completely determined to prevent Iran from getting a bomb, you'd be derelict if you didn't plan for what happens if your policies fail. It's not as if we've never had an experience of our policies failing, no matter how determined uh, we are. So that, I, I don't think that uh, that's fair. Um, and I would just say on, on two other points, one... Uh, you know, if Bibi Netanyahu were not president of it, were not prime minister of Israel, we would not be hearing about this in the same way, right? The Israeli intelligence establishment is very worried about the, an Iranian nuclear capability, however we want to define that. But they are arguing against a strike. They are arguing that they actually have it in hand in terms of what they can see, what they can do. They, there are other means. So we have to recognize that it's not like Israel as a whole feels this way. If you follow intra-Israeli debates, they're very intense, and there are military and intelligence uh, arguments on the side uh, of not striking. But the second point on whether it should be us uh, or Israel, I agree with Brett. I think it has to be us in no small part because actually Dennis started by saying no military strike can stop Iran permanently from getting a bomb. All we're talking about is delaying, and one of the good arguments against a strike is you're delaying, but you're, you're consolidating the will to do it ultimately. But if you're going to do it, the U.S. has the ability to strike in such a way that you delay for much longer than possibly Israel does. And if you're going to take this risk, then you might as well, and it's an enormous risk, you might as well uh, get maximum uh, benefit uh, from it. So... Um, but the last thing I'll say is I think Israel should believe President Obama, but not just because of President Obama's commitment to Israel's security. President Obama came into office wanting global zero. He wanted global nuclear disarmament, and he took steps toward that, first with the START Treaty toward Russia, then with conferences. He really believes that. It's, he actually believes that in part because Henry Kissinger, George Shultz, Sam Nunn, and, and uh, Bill Perry, uh, Democrats and Republicans, all believe that if you're heading for a world of 30, nuclear, what, 30 countries with nuclear weapons, sooner or later one's going to be used. I think President Obama thinks if Iran gets a bomb, Saudi Arabia gets a bomb, Egypt gets a bomb, Turkey gets a bomb, there is no way we're going to get out of that without somebody, either a state or a terrorist group using a bomb. And if he is reelected, that agenda will be more forward than it was uh, in the last four years. And that is going to drive him as much as any concern about Israel. Dennis, I know you want to wait here just to elaborate on one of the points Henry was making. I guess the Carnegie paper working group uh, said that uh, if Israel acted alone, it could delay the Iranian program by about two years. If the US joined, probably four. Is that about right? Uh, I actually think it understates how long Israel could actually delay it. And it's, you have to measure this both in what I call objective and subjective factors. The truth is, whoever hits the Iranians, the, the Iranian response after you hit them is to put everything underground. That in itself is going to take them two years, quite apart from the time it takes to build the facilities. So I think the truth is you're looking more like a delay of four to five years. Uh, and that With would any kind of strike. Yes. Even if the Israelis did it. Yes, we have more capability 
but the truth is there, there's really only one target where we have more, where we can deal with it, and that's Fordo, and they would have a harder time dealing with it directly. But I think fundamentally, the you should look at this as a delay of four to five years, and it can be longer if you create the context where Iran is kept isolated, where you have them under severe sanctions, where it's hard for them to get materials, where the cost to them, the financial cost in such a circumstance is very high. I was going to just, Go I want to just make a couple of, of, of points of fact. Just on one thing you said, Brett, um, the, the, uh, the exercise was originally delayed by the Israelis at the Israeli request. The Israelis knew at that time when they made the request that, Israel, that the United States wouldn't be able to participate in the same way later on. That was really not a case of sending a mixed signal. Okay. I do think, the, I do think that uh, General Dempsey's comments, which were in answer to a question, were uh, A, were not scripted. I would describe them more as an Eastwood moment. Uh, and <laughs> gentle. The, the, the term complicit was a, you know, was was not a good term. I mean, he could easily, because it implies it's like it's a crime. Mm. He could easily have said, if Israel does it, look, Israel makes its own decisions. When it comes to Israel's defense and its national security, ultimately Israel's the arbiter of that, not the United States. And if they make that decision, at the end of the day, they'll do it. Uh, we wouldn't be involved with it. He could have said it that way, and that wouldn't have sent the same kind of signal. It, it was something that had an effect on the Israelis. But I do think Amory's larger point is right. The fact is, this issue is basically the world against Iran, and it's also the point you made. It's the world against Iran. It's not Israel against Iran. Israel faces an existential threat, but one of the reasons the president focused on prevention as an objective is precisely because he sees the consequences in the region for nonproliferation if Iran, in fact, has a nuclear weapon. And bear in mind something else. One of the reasons you have the consequences you'll have in the region is that the Obama administration would be the third administration that would have declared that Iran can't have this capability. First, Clinton said it, then Bush said it, then Obama said it. And if three American administrations say they can't have it and they have it, that has a set of consequences. You, we are not going to be able to go to the Saudis and say, you know what, three administrations said it, but it's okay, trust our word. You can take our assurance. The Saudis, at that point, are going to say, we have to have this capability. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that the Saudis have that capability and that others in the region want to have the capability. This is not going to be the Cold War, where the US and the Soviet Union have a kind of ability to communicate with each other. Maybe it's not perfect, but they have an ability to communicate with each other. Even in the Cold War, when we had an ability to communicate with each other, we were much closer to nuclear war than we realized at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We subsequently had another case where, in fact, had it not been for a senior Soviet military official who decided not to react to a false positive. 73, uh, right? Yes. Well, not, no, post-73. We're no, talking about 90, what was a, yes, we're talking about what was, in fact, a, a launch, uh, oh. what appeared to be a launch of missiles when, in fact, it wasn't, and it was a false positive on radar. You can, even in a circumstance where the two of us had communication, we had a hotline, we were much closer to nuclear war than anyone would have been comfortable with. Take this to the Middle East where conflict is the norm, not the exception, where between Israel and Iran there is no communication, uh, where intelligence is bound to be imperfect, where conflicts take place and the potential for 
uh, you know, for a change in, in uh, if you raise the readiness of nuclear forces, that being seen as something that is uh, highly threatening and you can't afford to wait, you're going to have countries who are not in a situation where they feel they can afford to strike second. They're going to be on a hair trigger. If this is a region that becomes nuclear armed, the, the danger and the risk of nuclear war becomes very high. These are the reasons this is, in fact, the world against Iran. It's not just Israel against Iran. So, Kareem, bring us back inside Iran, then. If, if you have all these consequences of a nuclear run, if you have the consequences of a military strike, what are the sanctions that could be put in place that aren't currently being put in place that might actually reinforce uh, the forces inside Iran who are trying to follow a more moderate path? I don't think there's any sanctioned silver bullet. Uh, we've, we've, we've sanctioned Iran perhaps more than any other country in, in, in recent history. And you can argue that the sanctions have played a role in, in slowing down their nuclear progress. But I always use, I, I analogize sanctions to chemotherapy. You know, sanctions never perfectly target the, the tumor. And there's certainly been a, a lot of damage to the Iranian body politic as well. And, you know, ideally you set up a sanctions regime which, which Extend, uh, focuses on the target that you're trying to reach, the regime, and does as little damage as possible to those forces of change. And what I would say is that, you know, we've been, I think we've been far too focused on sanctions, and we haven't been sufficiently focused on communicating with the Iranian public. Um, if you look at the events in the Arab world over the last two or three years, I would say that the role that satellite television has played, uh, Al Jazeera, um, has played a remarkable role and in reaching these Arab publics and, and, and fueling the fire and the desire for change. And there's no kind of Al Jazeera equivalent which exists right now. In Iran, you have the BBC Persian, which has a wide audience. Uh, but the US government has a service called Voice of America, the uh, Persian News Network, PNN, which we spend $20, $25 million on right now. But its, its influence is woeful compared to that of BBC Persian. So what I would say is that you know, the sanctions are pretty significant. and the sanctions have been more um, uh, robust than anyone has expected, precisely because of the fact that we made these efforts to engage Iran, which Iran didn't reciprocate. So we have a much wider sanctions coalition than I think a lot of people anticipated. Uh, but I would say that we need kind of a Persian language equivalent of an Al Jazeera, which uh, communicates to Iranians why these sanctions are in place and why their own regime is the source of the problem. You know, I want to bring the audience back in here and then also get some questions from you as well. But uh, as a break first, let me pose a final question to our panelists, which is also the question for all of you. Uh, will Iran acquire a nuclear bomb within the next decade? A, no. B, yes. And while they're answering that, Brett, why don't you take a crack at this first and uh, add a Y to the back of the question? Well, you know, uh, as Niels Bohr famously said, you know, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Um, I uh, thought it was Yogi Berra. <laughs> no, we voted <laughs> Neil's comment is actually profound. But, um, uh, no, he said it was never over till it's over. <laughs> yeah, wow. um, look, uh, on present course, I think they will, um, because I think we are in the midst of a collective nervous breakdown in the West uh, that has more to do with our attitudes toward Iran, although it certainly does. I find it interesting that with each uh, occasion in which Iran flagrantly walks across some red line, our, um, 
our will to negotiate, our desire to engage, our doubts about the efficacy of military action seem to intensify, not weaken. So it's um, uh, sort of, in a sense, the opposite of the process that took place on the eve of the uh, Iraq war. But the doubts are growing and growing whether this can possibly work. I think the Iranians sense it. I think the Iranians are, are, are wise to believe that a nuclear weapon enhances their prestige, enhances their legitimacy, um, lengthens their lifespan as a, uh, uh, as a regime, is a goal worth uh, attaining. So I think they're going to go for it and go for it very forcefully. And I think right now, I mean, you know, I, I've been predicting for too long an Israeli military strike. So I have to, in intellectual honesty, say to myself, why haven't they done it? And my suspicion is some critical mass of Israelis. Now, we may wake up tomorrow. This would be almost amusing um, uh, and find that they have gone and done it. But there's a critical mass of Israelis that has serious doubts about the capacity of Israel to strike. The The United States has huge problems at home. Those problems may, for all we know, gravely intensify over the next, uh, um, over the next few months. For all we know, the next great conflagration is going to happen over Senkaku Island or some rock in the East China, um, East China Sea. So I do think that Iran is going to acquire a nuclear weapon, and I think the consequences are going to be felt for a very long time. Let me make um, one point. I think Dennis very eloquently and, and uh, uh, comprehensively laid out the scenarios of what happens should Iran become a nuclear weapon state. Um, there's one more scenario that I don't think gets enough attention. What if you have a situation in Iran, let's say following the, the next year's election, in June 2013, we know they're going to have some kind of presidential election. Let me just sketch a scenario for you. Next March, Bashar Assad is assassinated. The Iranians look at this and they say, boy, the Syrians did it. Um, maybe we can too. There's an election. It's another fraudulent election. And this time, there are mass demonstrations. They're met by bullets. But the Iranian people take the lesson of what the Syrians were able to do and, and, and you get this kind of slow fuse on the regime. Let's imagine further, I mean, this is a bit of a fantastical scenario, but at this point, Iran has acquired a small secret stock of nuclear weapons, okay? And they feel the clock is ticking on their regime. Do you really think that a regime that thinks it's on its way out, that its, time, that its life is limited, is going to simply leave those, those weapons in the bunker for their enemies to, to, to use their domestic opponents to take hold of? I don't think so. You have to imagine. There's a, there's, there's a view that Iran, a, a nuclear Iran will be a rational Iran, like a nuclear Pakistan or whatever, other unpleasant regimes that have nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons. But that always takes as its premise the view that this regime is necessarily stable and that it might not have some, in the back of its mind, some kind of Godard-Damerung scenario where maybe it will be worth the 30 or 35 years of an Islamic Republic just to take Israel out. Rafsanjani, I'm sure you're all familiar with a quote, said a decade ago, one nuclear bomb on Israel wipes it all out. They can throw their entire nuclear arsenal at us, at us and it merely damages them. And he said, it is not irrational to contemplate that scenario. So we need to be, I, I offer this scenario, I understand it's, it's a fantasy, but the reason I offer it is because we need to be imaginative about what might come our way in the likely event that Iran becomes a nuclear weapons state? Lot to chew on there. Anne-Marie, you want to take a crack at the question? Well, I, I'm going to take B, no, uh, f- for three reasons. One, 
I disagree on Israel's intent. Israel has struck Iraq, has struck Syria. So Israel has made clear that at some point it, it is not going to let a, a state in the region uh, that doesn't recognize its right to exist and much more than that actually get nuclear weapons. So I think if we really are, get to the point where there is more agreement within Israel uh, that Iran has decided to get a nuclear weapon and that they, this is the right way uh, to stop it is to strike, they will strike or they will use other means as they have used uh, to date. So I think Israel will strike. I think we will strike for the reasons I said, because, and Dennis, uh, uh, first of all, because of uh, the, this president's uh, commitment not to have a state go nuclear on his watch. And second, as Dennis said, this does have huge implications for our global credibility. I mean, it really, it is, it's not just about us and the Middle East at that point. It really is about, well, we say this, we say this, we say this, and then nothing happens. So I think the United States would strike as well. But the last reason is I do think, as I said before, there's a very good chance that the Iranians will rise up in the next 10 years. They were the first. Right now we can look back at the Green Revolution and see it not simply as something that happened in Iran, but the first example of something, frankly, anybody who'd been studying the Middle East had been writing books about for 10 years, saying there's an enormous demographic bulge. In countries like Yemen, you have 70% of the population under 30. Huge demographic bulge, lots of young people without jobs, without the possibility of the kind of future they can now see uh, through BBC or, or other, other sources. And sooner or later, they are going to rise up. The Iranians rose up, they were shot down, but since then you've seen two, Tunisia successful, Libya successful, Egypt, a, a Muslim president elected, Syria will see. I think they will rise up. Uh, and, it, and the other thing I would add at that point is the dynamics of the region are changing hugely. You know, Iran paints itself as the leader of the Middle East in a way that actually might apply to Erdogan and Turkey, but definitely does not apply to the supreme leader beyond a few countries. So you have Turkey vying to be the leader of the Middle East. You have Saudi Arabia with a far more active foreign policy than it's had ever before. You have Egypt coming back. That changes the dynamics inside the, the Iranian regime and with respect to the Iranian people. So my view is if we can keep doing what we're doing, uh, I would favor at least putting a package on the table. I think it puts us in a better political position. But overall, making clear we are prepared to stop and delay this if we have to, but ideally what we want in the end, we're not going to bring it about, but ideally what will change Iran's calculations is a new government within Iran, and time and regional dynamics are on our side. Kareem? You know, this Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, I think has put himself in a very difficult position because for 23 years he's been Supreme Leader since 1989. He's sought to preserve the status quo by avoiding transformative decisions. And he's now put himself into a corner, and the only two options out are both transformative. One is a nuclear deal, and the other is a nuclear weapon. And I think for a variety of reasons, it's going to be very difficult to get a nuclear deal with Iran, precisely because they're unwilling to give up their hostility towards Israel, towards the United States. Um, and I think if there's one thing about domestic American politics, you can enrich uranium and you can call for Israel to, to be wiped off the map, but you can't do both at the same time. 
uh, that's going to be very tough for him. And second, if he pursues a nuclear weapon, if he breaks out, I think it's clear to all of us, there's a consensus here, that not only would he be bombed by Israel, but the United States. So I think he's put himself in a very difficult position. And I actually think that historians are going to look, up, look back at this issue five, ten years from now and say that Iran's nuclear program was somewhat similar to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the sense that it was a measure which was taken ostensibly to enhance their security. But what it did was that it isolated them politically and it bled them financially and it ultimately hastened their demise. So I think historians will look back and say this, this nuclear program actually hastened the demise of the Islamic Republic rather than prolonged it. Wait, so are you saying hasten it further by having them get a nuclear weapon? No, I actually don't think that... Um, I actually think that for Khamenei, as I said, he, he sought to avoid these transformative decisions. I think he's not going to turn the screwdriver, so to speak. I think our combination of these coercive sanctions, uh, sabotage, um, uh, and the military deterrent, I think he's going to uh, continue to pursue this path where it's just a capability, not a weapon. We can contain that. Can, can I just say yeah. something very quickly? You said something earlier, which I, I think is a... It, it, is a very fair point to make, but I think it's an assumption that is too easily held, that a military strike on Iran would have the effect of rallying Iranian people to the regime. And, and people I not only you, but Bernard Lewis has made this point, don't give this regime the gift of Iranian patriotism. I think that's, that's the quote. There's something to be said for that view. It's also worth remembering that in 1982, this despicable junta in uh, Argentina invaded the Falklands, and suddenly overnight these, these bastards who were throwing people out, off of helicopters and all the rest of it became national heroes because they had reclaimed Las Malvinas. Eight weeks later, they were out of Las Malvinas and humiliated in a, in a tremendous, unequivocal military defeat. The regime fell within a week. 1999, hmm. the Clinton administration, to its undying credit, went to war over Kosovo. And there is no cause more sacred to a Serbian nationalist's heart than Kosovo. 1389, the Battle mm -hmm. of Kosovo, and you had all these Balkanologists telling you, this is where Milosevic will have his stand. And I remember even a Serbian friends of mine who were against Milosevic suddenly were very sympathetic to, to Milosevic. But Milosevic fell within a year. Mm -hmm. When a regime puts so much of its prestige in a single, highly controversial, highly expensive, and ultimately failed project, it will pay a political price. So we shouldn't simply assume that we give Iran a lease on life by attacking them. We might be denying them that lease. You know, there's a line from Yates, which I know Brett, Brett likes as well, which says, the, the best lack of conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. My concern with Iran is that, you know, the, the son of a, a shine of the regime once said this to me, that in times of crisis, one Islamist is worth 50 liberals because the Islamists are willing to go out into the streets and kill, if not die for the cause. And the liberals you're talking about, who are, in many cases will be happy the regime's gotten a bloody nose, will stay at home and post like on Facebook. <laughs> Dennis, get the last word, and then we'll come back to the audience. Um, let me say several <laughs> things. One, I look at the Supreme Leader, and I think that the most important thing for him is to die in office of natural causes. Uh, and to the extent to which he comes to believe that we will actually use force and becomes convinced of it, it creates the best possible chance for us to actually have a diplomatic way out. So I don't, even though I, you know, this is a, this is 
not something that one can guarantee. I think there still is a potential to avoid the use of force, but unfortunately I think it requires being completely credible in their eyes that we will in fact use it. I also think the way he operates, he operates on the brink. Mm. If he actually gets to the point, he thinks he, this is kind of a, he's playing poker. And suddenly, if he decides that this is no longer a bluff, then I think that he backs off. But you have to, unfortunately, you have to get to the brink. That's the first point. The second point is, if I'm right, then obviously they're not going to have a nuclear weapon. If I'm wrong, I still think that what you'll, in the end, I think either Israel or the United States will act. And here again, the connection between the two points I'm making is the more he becomes convinced that's the case, the more the possibility that you'll have a diplomatic outcome. Right now, today, I believe they, the, the Supreme Leader looks and says, we won't act before the election. We'll prevent the Israelis from acting before the election. And he thinks somehow things will change after the election, that there'll be a magical transformation after the election. He's going to find, by the way, that's wrong. And now the first instinct he'll have, because everything's seen through the prism of a conspiracy, is somehow we tricked him when he finds out that we actually mean what we say. But he still is going to have to come to grips with the reality that we'll do this. And when and you look at their behavior in terms of how they've approached the nuclear issue, it's never been a dash. It's never been a run. It's always been a kind of creep, because he hasn't wanted to create the kind of explicit provocation that would trigger what I'm describing. So at the end of the day, I think there is a way to produce a diplomatic outcome. What we need to do is be credible that we actually will use force, but I think at the same time, one of the ways you make that credible is put an end game proposal on the table. That will also clarify uh, the Iranian mind and make it very clear, right, here it is. You have a way out, take it, because the alternative is if you don't take it, you're going to see force being used. That was a fascinating debate. Thank you. I want to see if it changed any minds. We do have time for a couple of questions as well. But as we do that, as you think of a question, I want to have them ask the audience each question in turn again to see if, uh, if anybody's mind has been changed on any of the three questions. We'll do them in sequence. And as you're, as you're, as you're doing that, does anybody have any questions for the panelists? I think part of the problem with regard to the debate in America on this topic is what may have been reflected in this panel. We were told to expect four very different perspectives on uh, American policy to Iran, yet there's unanimity that prevention, not containment, is the right approach. And there are at least a couple of panelists seemingly trying to outdo each other in terms of recommended future severity of action against Iran. So, uh, But there's no one really talking about how the world looks to Iran and how this nuclear issue fits into that context, not in isolation, but in the context of how Iranians view the world uh, as a whole. Um, given the perspective reflected in this debate, given the debate that's the public debate that is occurring in the US, which is mostly um, uh, contentious with regard to what should be done with regard to Iran, I'm, I'm puzzled as to why anyone would regard it as feasible that authorities in Iran would accept a proposition that with regard to civilian nuclear power, that they turn the supply chain over to an external party when nuclear power, uh, nuclear electrical power presumably could be something quite significant for them. And if that is in fact the best proposal that the US and the West are willing to put on the table, 
and which logically should be entirely unacceptable to the Iranians for a variety of reasons, then is there really any path out of this mess other than uh, both sides being essentially at each other's throats in the future? Well, I, I agree with the first premise of your question that there was more consensus than, than I anticipated. Um, but the second premise of your question that you, you said that the nuclear, civilian nuclear energy program um, could, could be uh, significant for Iran as part of its energy strategy. Um, and that's false. Uh, uh, let me give you some numbers. Uh, for Iran to import in, in, uh, enriched uranium, LEU, from abroad, rather than enriching it indigenously, uh, would be about one-tenth of the cost. Um, I remember uh, Frank von Hippel, who's an eminent uh, physicist, a colleague of yours at Princeton, once, once uh, kind of framed this for me in a metaphor. He said, think about, think that uh, next week the Iranian government decides that it wants its citizens uh, to drive Honda Civics. But instead of importing each Honda Civic from Japan for $10,000 each, it insists on in, uh, making them uh, within Iran for $100,000 per car. You know, that you would say is, is, a, is a totally crazy energy strategy, it's, and, and it's compounded in Iran given all they've lost in terms of sanctions and the fact that they're neglecting their natural gas reserves, which are second in the world. Now, your argument was that the Iranian regime has said it can't be dependent on outside sources, and therefore it has to do it indigenously. One of the offers which the Europeans made to them several years back was that if, they, if you, you, you can't trust the outside world, we'll give you five years' worth of uh, nuclear stockpile, of, of nuclear fuel rods, um, so you can be you know, rest assured that you will have that supply. And the Iranian regime rejected it out of hand. So I, I think that the, the realistic debate, if there was a group of nuclear physicists up here, they would say the realistic discussion is not whether Iran is in pursuit of a nuclear energy program or a nuclear weapons program. It's whether they're in pursuit of a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons capability. And then I think, you know, going back to our discussion, herein lies the tension between the United States and Israel. Okay. The Shah left Iran in 1978 because the military mutinied. They refused to put down demonstrations, popular uprising, asking for freedom. and they, The military mutinied, and the Shah left for Egypt. Now, with the, the mullah, the theocrats really lost their legitimacy in the latest election. And we've talked about their people, and people have gained some legitimacy. The military really is the power, I think. Can you give some comments about where the military is in, in this calculus? That's for you, too. Please. Well, um, you know, there was a famous moment in late 1978 when the Shah went on state television, when the, uh, the you know, revolutionary uprisings were happening. And the Shah went on state television, and he apologized for past sins and past transgressions. And he very famously said, I've heard the voice of your revolution. And I found a quote once from Khamenei in which he said that the Shah thought by doing that, by apologizing to us, he was going to pacify the crowds and appease us and stop the protests. But on the contrary, that's why we saw how vulnerable he was. We smelled blood and we pounced. And for precisely that reason, the Islamic Republic, both in terms of their internal politics and their external politics, their modus operandi is that you never compromise under pressure. And Khamenei has created this setup in which he's the, you know, according to the Constitution, he's commander-in-chief of the Revolutionary Guards. 
And for the last two decades, one thing he's done very effectively is to cultivate the senior cadres of the Revolutionary Guards. Um, he, he cultivates them. He shuffles them every three, four years. So he prevents them from establishing their own power base. And I think this is one of the real distinctions between, say, Iran and Mubarak's Egypt or Ben Ali's Tunisia. You know, in those countries, when the going got tough, the, the military cut the dictator loose. And I think in Iran, you have uh, a difficult dynamic in which at least the leadership of the Revolutionary Guards sees their future inextricably linked to that of the Supreme Leader. It's like Libya on this side. Yeah. I'm curious about the uh, uh, Iran's relations with the uh, regimes that are coming into existence in other countries in the region, uh, such as Egypt, possibly Yemen, if they're going to have a new regime, and Syria, if they're going to have a new regime anytime soon. Um, I realize that uh, uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, their Ba'athist regimes were uh, fully secular. Um, Iraq's 2005 constitution has established Islam as, Islamic law as the fund, foundation of their law. Um, and in Syria, it, I'm guessing it's possible a the theocratic state might take shape. And um, in Egypt, um, I, th I think Egypt was a secular regime. I'm not sure. But um, their newly elected government is not secular at all. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, which countries might become friends with them, which might become enemies. I, I, I understand uh, Iran does not get along, usually it's not getting along well with sec uh, Sunni uh, countries in the region, demographically Sunni, and uh, have a Sunni government. Um, and I want to know if, you know, one, which will be countries and uh, enemies in France, two, um, if some of these countries become essentially failed states, then will that help them uh, in terms of finding uh, terrorists, um, people who have no affiliation with any state who can, you know, get hold of a nuclear weapon and not have to take responsibility for it? Um, well, you saw at the non-aligned movements meeting in Tehran uh, a few weeks ago this extraordinary set to between uh, Mohammed Morsi and uh, uh, Khamenei and, and, and the Islamic leaders. And clearly this is a kind of Mao Khrushchev moment, and if, if that's the right analogy, <laughs> that you have two Islamist leaders who uh, clearly have uh, very profound differences. Those differences are over Syria. In the news in the last couple of days, um, you have the Iranian Revolutionary Guard very openly admitting that it is um, infiltrating its uh, commanders and, and uh, IRGC fighters into Syria. And how events in the region play out, and this is something that we probably should have broached uh, mm. at greater length in the debate, um, is how uh, the future of Syria may affect the future of the relationship with Iran and Iran's prospects in the region. Uh, one way, I think, one useful way of thinking about Iran's future in the region is think about it in terms of insurance. I, I was in Bahrain not long ago. So you're in little Bahrain, okay? Tiny little island. Um, and you're looking for an insurance policy, okay? There used to be this fabulous insurance policy called AIG, right? The American Insurance Group. It's not so great anymore. I mean, there are rumors about its solvency, right? So you're kind of looking around and just trying to figure out who else can provide insurance. You know, one of the ways, and it's the same, I think, with a lot of the other uh, uh, Gulf states that may have real hostility towards Iran, but they're wondering whether the right approach to Iran is going to be confrontation 
or some kind of modus vivendi. Um, one of the reasons we need to be concerned about the prospect of a nuclear Iran is because the moment Iran becomes nuclear, all of these states that have hitherto been our allies, whether we like them or not, are going to have real doubts about the value of having an American insurance policy. Not only, as Dennis said, because you will have three successive presidents saying one thing and then it turning out uh, to be false, but because anyone with a brain knows that America is not going to send its sons and daughters to die for Doha or Dubai. You know, in the, in the 30s, they used to say, why die for Danzig, you know, the little Polish town, which was the corridor up there in the Baltic. Well, we're going to say, why die for Doha? Why are we going to risk a confrontation with a nuclear Iran, which from time to time appears to be insane, and maybe it is, um, for the sake of defending these cruddy little monarchies and shakedoms um, uh, on, the, on the opposite side of the Arabian or Persian Gulf, if you will. So um, the future of Iran's relationship with its neighbors is intrinsically linked to its prospects for nuclearization. An Iran that becomes a nuclear power will have immense leverage over Iraq, over the Gulf states, perhaps over Syria if it can keep its finger there, over parts of Afghanistan as well. So, I, just, I just want to frame the relations sort of two different ways you can think about it. And I would just say, to remember, you know, those countries uh, on the, the Persian Gulf, the way the Iranians talk about it, or the Arabian Gulf, uh, are still at the crossroads of civilization. Uh, they really are. And, and as the East, as Asia rises, uh, that region is once again the central trading region between Asia and Europe and Asia and Africa. They are hugely important, and actually the, even the small countries, uh, I think, have, a, have an important role to play. But I think there are two ways to see this. One is in terms of a Shiite-Sunni split. And there you have an extreme Shiite regime in the Iranian regime and an extreme Sunni regime, an Al, uh, a uh, Wahhabi regime, in Saudi Arabia, and both of them have an have a, uh, interest in polarizing the politics of the region between extremist Sunnis and extremist Shiites. The other way to look at it is actually you've got a number of, of powers, and you have two strong, more moderate Islamic powers in Turkey and Egypt, both of whom, Turkey certainly is a democracy, a member of NATO, has its problems for sure, but they represent modernization, and they are reestablishing themselves in the region as this is the way, finally, this region is going to both democratize and develop market economies that are not just based on individual resources. That's the, play, that's the way I think most of the people in the region would like to go. But you've got four important countries with two very different ways of presenting appeals to the people. We've got time for one more. Can I just comment on that? Yeah. Um, I think you have to divide this in near term and longer term. In the near term, the, the Iranians have done an enormous amount to discredit themselves in the region. First, at the very moment when you had a kind of awakening in terms of people feeling that they had a voice, Iran was squashing the voice of their own people. Second, they are seen as basically killing Sunnis uh, in Syria. Mm. Uh, and that has created a much deeper alienation towards them, and not just towards them, but also towards someone like Hassan Nasrallah, who was really their main proxy, uh, if you look at Lebanon and Hezbollah. I mean, the striking thing, go back to 2006, and you saw, if you went throughout the Middle East, you'd find pictures of Nasrallah everywhere. 
Today, you find his picture being burned. He's seen as a purely sectarian leader, and the Iranians are seen in narrow sectarian terms as well. So right now, they don't do very well in the region. I think Brett's point about if they become nuclear and they have the shield behind which to use their proxies, that will have an effect on some of their neighbors. One of the reasons the Saudis will go nuclear is precisely because they have to create a counterweight. Mm -hmm. They can't allow the, their main competitor to look like they have an advantage technologically, militarily, and psychologically. Now, the question is, if the Saudis do that, you know, then what, else does, that, what is it, else does it mean for the rest of GCC? I would say right now, most of the GCC wants to ensure that the Iranians don't go nuclear, because they're also not too keen on the idea that the Saudis will go nuclear. You know, these are small states, and the truth is, they may be quite <laughs> aligned with the, with the Saudis, but they really don't want to be at the mercy of either one. So we have a big stake as it relates to the nuclear issue. We also need to recognize what's happening in the region as a whole. The, the, only, the only quibble I would have with Anne-Marie on her last comment is it's too soon to say that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is going That's to be a kind of modernizing uh, force in the region. That remains to be seen. Accurate. We have some potential to affect them because the more they believe they have to deliver, the more they're going to need help from the outside, the more they understand there's a set of rules they have to play by if they're going to get that help from the outside, then we may be able to affect the pathway without exaggerating how much influence we'll ultimately have. Last question. Thank you. Um, my question is to Professor Amory Slother. Um, and I, I've, I have read some articles um, where you talk about how we live in such interconnected world, which I agree completely. Um, given the fact that Idan... Um, we can say that basically they don't care on how much, how many sanctions we impose on them and that other countries are doing businesses with them while at the same time they have such a strategic position that, um, graphically in the region. And considering that the United States um, has many, uh, many, um, many reasons to have a good relationship with, with Iran, as you expressed before. How do you think, how do, um, how do you think that we should go ahead in enforcing these negotiations, or, ha or how should we tackle this opportunity, um, in, given the fact also that we have such a tense relationship right now? How should we go ahead in trying to, to, do, um, to keep relationships with Iran? Because... Uh, from what I understand, you expressed before that we really need to keep um, improving these relationships. Oh. Uh, I'm glad, glad you asked the question. So I said uh, the, the intensified negotiations uh, were the right thing. I'm a little disheartened to see that actually fewer of you uh, agree with that after this debate than before. But on the other hand, it's the position that has the, the strong majority in the room. So I'll just ignore the, that little three-point shift. Uh, the, the, but my point was uh, we can... We, we need to do everything we can to bring the Iranians back to the table. And there, Dennis and I both agree that it's time to stop step-by-step -step negotiation, that you be, you're willing to put a package on the table to say, look, we are willing to negotiate seriously around that. If that works, uh, and, and you have meaningful negotiations, and we don't hesitate to break them off if nothing is happening, then, as I said, having that conversation is useful because there are other areas where we need to talk to them, both around Syria and Afghanistan, and that could be part of some deal. It would never be part of a public deal, but once you're talking to another country, there's a lot of things uh, that, that are in the mix. 
I, I will defer to Kareem and others that, that it may well be that the Iranian government is simply not in the kind of political position to accept any deal or to come back to the table meaningfully. And if that's true, then I, I end where I started, which was to say we need intensified negotiations even if they fail, because if we then have to move to a military strike, it has to be clear that we actually negotiated in good faith and that we tried to do everything else. And all of you end in almost exactly the same place where you started. You see the numbers up there. <laughs> Tiny shifts, uh, a little bit more for military strike and intensified sanctions, but it was a terrific discussion. Thanks to all our panelists. Thanks to all of you for coming today.